Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. To many of us who live in California, oak woodlands may seem rather ordinary. However, in reality, that is not the case. Oak woodlands are home to more species of plants, fungi, birds, reptiles, amphibians, insects, and mammals than any other terrestrial ecosystem in California. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Kate Marionchild, author of Secrets of Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. Her book, now in its fourth printing, was a finalist in the Science, Nature, and Environment section of the Indie Next Generation Book Award. Secrets of Oak Woodlands describes many of the flora, fauna, and fungi which inhabit the plentiful oak woodlands here in California, and it explains their intertwined connection and mutual support system. More details are available at katemarionchild.com. In this program, Marion Child describes how acorn woodpeckers, manzanita, newts, the western fence lizard, and wood rats, among others, live and survive together in a symbiotic ecosystem. When Kate Marion Child visited the Radio Curious studios on June 5th, 2017, we began our conversation when I asked her why she wrote a book about oak woodlands and to describe for us what oak woodlands are. I moved to Ukiah in Northern California in 2001 to a yurt which is a circular structure in an oak woodland about 15 minutes from downtown. And I had been a nature lover my whole life, but I had never fallen head over heels in love with an ecosystem before. The first thing I noticed was the beautiful birds and the, and the beautiful bird songs. And I quickly tried to learn their names to get to know all of the regular birds in the ecosystem. I was surrounded by a species of bird called acorn woodpeckers that flew around my house, pecked on its walls, pecked on snags near my house, made a lot of noise, flashed beautiful colors of red and white and black. And I was ill at the time, very ill with Lyme disease and isolated and new to this the community. And the acorn woodpeckers created such a uh, cheerful atmosphere around me that I was not lonely when I was out of doors. Years passed and I didn't learn anything more about them except that they were beautiful and noisy and they did a lot of pecking. Then I joined our local Audubon Society and I ended up on the board of it. I ended up being involved in planning monthly programs and I said, could we have a program about acorn woodpeckers? 
and it turned out that the World Authority on Acorn Woodpeckers was available, and he came and gave a talk. And I was astounded at how interesting this species is. It's what I call a world-class species. It has characteristics that are unknown in any other species in the world. One thing is that they drill individual holes in wood to store acorns individually. These structures that they store them in, which, which can be trees or they can be the uh, houses, they, they love the siding of houses, they love telephone poles, but usually it's trees with thick bark or, or dead trees. Those are called granaries and they are the only species in the world known to drill an individual hole for an individual food item. And some of their granaries have 50,000 acorns in them. They live in clans, and their, uh, so, their, so their social structure is another world-class feature. They have communal marriages. I call them permanent communal marriages of up to three females and up to seven males. And any one of those females might have sex with any one of those males and vice versa. There are also non-breeding helpers in the clan who help raise the young. The females uh, lay all their eggs in the same nest. So basically, they're incredibly communal. They harvest and store and consume food communally. They raise young communally. They have communal marriages. They have communal sex. And they have communal simulated sex. I can tell you from my personal experience here in the building where the Radio Curious studio is, the acorn woodpeckers live in the yard and uh, peck on the fascia boards around the yurt in, in which the studio is located. I learned in, in another area just down the street that by getting rubber snakes that kids play with and nail them onto the fascia boards, it scares the woodpeckers away. That's great. I, that's a solution I hadn't heard yet. I've put up flashing to cover the fascia of my yurt, and I have put uh, an owl, uh, a, a plastic owl, in one of my windows. People hang CDs to scare them, and I have also hung uh, bird netting held out from the wall about four inches. That's the best I've found, but I will try the snakes. They work for us. So... What are some of the other creatures uh, that live in the oak woodlands? Well, some of my favorites are California newts, uh, wood rats, the western fence lizards, uh, California quail. There, there are actually 300 species of mammals that live in California's oak woodlands, and 5,000 insects and other arthropods like spiders, and 1,100 plant species. The California's oak woodlands are actually the hot spots of biodiversity in California. There is no other type of ecosystem that supports so much uh, life and so much diversity of species. Let's stay with the species and move on to the newts. Okay. So newts are a kind of salamander and salamanders are amphibians. In California, we have four newt species, and they all have 
kind of brownish backs and either yellow, orange, or tomato red undersides. Almost all amphibians are somewhat toxic, but are these four species of newts, which are known as the Pacific newts or the Western newts, are the most toxic salamanders in the world. By toxic, what do you mean in relationship to being the most toxic in the world? Well, if you took one of these newts, the most toxic one ever measured, and you ground it up and fed it to humans, it would kill 200 humans. And if you injected it into humans, it would kill 2,000. It's loaded with a potent neurotoxin called TTX, which is in the skin and the muscles and the blood and in the females, the ovaries and the eggs also contain it. So this uh, presumably has to do with um, their protection from predators. Yes. A young biologist in the 19, early 1960s uh, decided to investigate whether a newt could have been the culprit in the death of three hunters in a campsite in Oregon. There was no sign of attack of any sort, no reason to suspect suicide. And the only thing unusual in that campsite was a dead newt in their coffee pot. So he started watching newts, and he noticed that when they were threatened, they raised their heads and tails, which showed off their bright undersides. And in the animal world, bright colors often mean, eat me at your own risk. I'm poisonous or unpalatable. So he decided to, when he saw that, he thought, okay, I'm on the right track. So he decided to study to uh, determine whether they were toxic, and he tested them, and he discovered these incredibly off-the-charts levels of tetrodotoxin, or TTX. And he wondered, why do they need to be this toxic? Uh, a tiny amount of TTX would kill the average predator. And he hypothesized that they were in something called a coevolutionary arms race with some predator. When you say the average predator, what are the predators to newts? Well, uh, they ha have hardly any because they're so toxic. But when he saw a garter snake eating a newt and uh, live to slither away unscathed, he thought, aha, garter snakes must be the predators with which newts are in a coevolutionary arms race because any normal animal would have died. So how does this balance out into the ability of uh, the garter snakes to develop a resistance to the toxicity of the newts? So... If you go back in the mists of time, imagine a population of garter snakes that is preying on a population of newts, and the population of newts is declining. And then a random mutation comes along that uh, makes a newt toxic. And imagine that a garter snake, in the process of eating that, that newt, is able to tell that this is not a good idea. And uh, lets it go. In fact, humans have, have observed one garter snake that was in the process of swallowing a newt for 80 minutes, and then it 
seems to have decided that, whoops, I better uh, let this one go. And the newt crawled out and walked away and, and apparently survived to pass on its genes. So that's how it works. The, the toxic newts survived to pass on their genes. And uh, so then what would have happened is that uh, a garter snake would have evolved uh, resistance to the newt toxicity and lived and, and survived, uh, ate plenty of newts, didn't starve, and survived to pass on its genes. So it ratchets up like that. Newts uh, become more toxic, rattles, uh, garter snakes become more resistant, newts become more toxic, garter snakes become more resistance, resistant, and that's what's called the coevolutionary arms race. We're visiting with Kate Marion Child. She's the author of Secrets of Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. Her book addresses the area primarily in Northern California, including Mendocino County, the home of Radio Curious. You are listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Kate, newts and lizards look alike to the untrained eye. Can you tell us how the western fence lizard fits into the oak woodlands of Northern California? Fence lizards, yes, they look a lot like newts or a lot like salamanders, but actually they're reptiles, not amphibians, and they are no more closely related to amphibians than they are to us. The western fence lizard is considered a keystone species in many habitats in California. That means a species that has a large impact on its environment in proportion to its abundance. Fence lizards are food for many species, and they're also consumers of a lot of species. Well, Kate, I'm I'm curious about uh, the western fence lizards. I occasionally see when my cat brings one into our home a lizard tail flopping around or a lizard without a tail. Yeah, they have uh, evolved the ability to drop their tails. One study determined that it was in response to predation by snakes that they evolved that ability. But a lizard that loses its tail is at a disadvantage. It's less likely to find a mate and reproduce than lizards with tails. And it takes a lot of energy to produce a new one. But they can regrow the tail. They regrow the tail, but the tail uh, looks different. It's more cartilaginous, and it somehow members of the opposite sex know that uh, this lizard isn't completely intact. So this ability to regrow a significant body part. Is that unique to the lizard, or is it found in other creatures in the oak woodlands? Well, let's go back to newts. Newts have the ability to not only regrow their limbs, which most amphibians have, they can also regrow their hearts, their livers, the lenses of their eyes, parts of their brains, and parts of their lungs. And And in an experiment in which newts were taken from the wild at age 14, approximately, scientists uh, removed the lenses of their eyes, and they grew back in five months. They repeated the experiment, and they grew back again in five months, completely, perfectly formed. 
They did it again. They did it again. They did it again. They did it 18 times when they stopped the experiment and decided they didn't want to torture these poor newts anymore, at which point the, the newts were uh, 34 years old, and uh, which was the equivalent of 100 years old in human years, and their ability to regenerate the lenses of their eyes had not diminished one iota or and it didn't take any longer than it did the very first time so back to fence lizards can i yes go let's go back to fence lizards and uh, can you tell us about the third eye and their navigational ability yes yes so uh western fence lizards have three eyes the their their two lateral eyes and then a, an eye that's set between the parietal bones of their skull that is called the parietal eye. And scientists used to think that that eye was only for the purpose of uh, seeing light and dark, for instance, or knowing what season it was, telling them when to reproduce, telling them whether it was time to brumate, which is the reptilian version of hibernation, uh, telling them when it was time to mate. But... It's This eye is connected to the pineal gland, and what scientists have discovered is that it's actually a GPS unit. It has a, it has a retina and a cornea and a lens, just like a regular eye, and it can see blue and green colors. So it does do all those other things that they thought it did. But uh, if a newt went on a little journey and it was trying to come home, what it would do in the beginning of the, uh, as it goes along, is that eye reads the pattern of polarized light. When the sun's light hits the Earth's atmosphere, it polarizes, and the, the parietal eye of the newt uh, records the pattern. And so at every turn as it's going on its journey, it's recording the pattern of polarized light. Then when it turns around to come back, it follows sort of like a reversed printout of those readings, compensating for the progressed position of the sun. The lizards are able to identify it and use it to get home. Yes. Yes. This is fascinating. This yeah. is fascinating for someone who's lived within and, and close to the oak woodlands for over 40 years. I find your book uh, a marvel to read. Thank you. That's why I wrote it. I wanted to, I was learning fascinating things like about the third eye of the newt, of the, of the fence lizard, and I would tell my friends, and they had not heard of it. They had no idea. And first I started writing little articles in our hometown newspaper, the Ukiah Daily Journal, and then I realized that it was a lot of work to write articles for a one-day appearance in a small-town newspaper. And that was one of the issue, one of the motivations for your book, Secrets of the Oak Woodlands. Yes. So you mentioned earlier there are uh, quite a few small mammals. Yes. And one of them, one of my favorites, is the wood rat. And that we can actually tie that into the western fence lizard because wood rats... Are, they're small mammals about eight inches long with eight inch long tails. 
They have big eyes and big ears. They're called wood rats, but they're actually more like huge mice. And they build, as I was writing my book and researching wood rats, I thought, huh, I wonder if they might build the most complex above ground houses of any mammal in the world. I made that claim in the book and I have received no, nobody contradicting it. So they build houses out of sticks uh, that can be 10 feet high and they're conical or dome shaped usually. And inside these houses, there are corridors and there are uh, sleeping chambers, often several in an old, uh, well-established house. There are leaching rooms where they put leaves that are toxic and need to outgas for a while. They have pantries for food and a separate pantry for each different kind of food. So berries will be in one, toyone berries, manzanita berries will be in one. Um, mushrooms might be in another, acorns might be in a third. There was a wood rat house in the San Gabriel Mountains that was found to have 60 pounds of acorns in it. So these houses have, are marvelous uh, survival uh, strategies for wood rats because if they're sick or uh, giving birth or if, or if there's an owl in the neighborhood, they can just hide out in their house and have plenty of food, and on uh, they have outs, they have dedicated latrine areas. But if it's if the weather is really bad, they will uh, use uh, a room in the house and then later clean it out, usually on the edge of the house. And why they are how I tie them in with lizards is that these houses are occupied not only by wood rats but by dozens of other species that take refuge in them and find protection against California's hot, dry summers or cold, wet winters. And lizards are one of them. They'll uh, brewmate in a wood rat house. Even rattlesnakes will curl up in a wood rat house for the winter. And nobody knows exactly what happens in the spring, whether they respect their, their hosts and uh, leave without getting a meal first. Well, that's my question. Isn't the rattlesnake a predator of the wood rat? Yes. So how does that fit in well, to the living structure in, the, in these 10-foot conical domes? Or? Well, wood rats wall off the rattlesnake during the winter, and presumably the rattlesnakes just slither away and uh, go out looking for a meal and don't try to find the meal in the wood rat house, but nobody really knows. And there are newts also uh, that live in wood rat houses and frogs and spiders and brush mice, small mammals, amphibians and reptiles, spiders, insects. And, they, and so where there are wood rat houses, there is much increased biodiversity and abundance of species. So biologists are actually trying to figure out how to increase, how to improve habitat so that's attractive to wood rats. And one of the main predators of wood rats is the northern spotted owl, which is uh, endangered. 
So that's one reason. That's the main reason that biologists have studied them so much, I think. Well, Kate Marion Child, I want to thank you very much for joining us uh, here at Radio Curious and telling us some of the secrets of Oakwood Lands. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. The first one is, uh, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that changed your life or gave you a new vision by which you live? Well, in the middle of my book writing process, I became depressed and paralyzed. I couldn't face plowing through any more deadly science articles. And I had a deadline coming up that I knew I couldn't meet because uh, the project had expanded a lot. My editor told me that writers often experience depression and paralysis as deadlines approach, and that a challenge for writers is that the subject that originally inspired them becomes associated with anxiety and pressure and stress. So she extended my deadline, and during that break, my partner Michael said, Sweetie, this is bigger than you. This is a calling. The plants and animals need you to finish this book. And that did it. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? What I want to do is find a way to immerse myself for hours every day in the natural world, to spend in deep observation of nature. And finally, Kate Marion Child, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners? Yes, I just read a book called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. It's a slim but very potent volume, a true story about an American woman who is struck down in her prime by a terrible, mysterious illness while she's hiking in the Alps. And all she can do is lie in bed without moving. It's excruciating for her to turn over and she experiences repercussions for hours. So she has a caregiver and her friends show up less and less frequently. One friend, however, goes out in the woods and finds a wild native snail and brings it in and puts it in a flower pot on her bedside table. She's annoyed when the friend leaves without taking the snail away, but eventually that snail becomes her greatest comfort. I won't say more, but this book has won numerous awards, and I think it will be riveting to anyone who reads it. Well, Kate Marion Child, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. You're very welcome. Kate Marion Child is the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. Her book describes many of the flora, fauna, and fungi which inhabit the oak woodlands of California and explains their intertwined connection and mutual support system. More details are available at katemarionchild.com. The book Kate Marion Child recommends is The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. This program was recorded on June 5th, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions on our website, 
www.radiocurious.org. They're all free to listen and download and share anytime, anywhere as my gift to you. Our programs are published weekly, normally on Tuesday evening. Your comments, ideas, and suggestions are always appreciated, and we do enjoy hearing from you. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. Postal mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Angie Voiles Askham is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.